Before we started this week's episode, Craig and I would like to update uh, everyone, which I'm sure you're wondering how we got through the hurricane. I was fine in Fernandina Beach. It looked like uh, for a, a while, Craig, St. Pete, where you are, was going to be hard hit, but you were spared. Yeah, we were going to try and ride out the storm in our uh, Craftsman humble abode uh, built in 1926, but uh, the city said, nope, nope, you're in an evacuation zone. Get out of there. So we relocated to a hotel in Largo. Yeah. Apparently, our neighborhood did okay. I uh, lost power, got power back, but uh, one of my neighbors lost a really huge oak tree in the front yard. So, well, and the images we've all seen now of Fort Myers, Fort Myers Beach, oh, Sanibel, Captiva. Certainly, our thoughts yeah. are are with everyone down there. Our Absolutely. friends in, in Sarasota who've sponsored the podcast for so long. You look at mm-hmm. at that sort of uh, damage, and uh, you you can't help but think there. But for the grace of God, go I. But Greg and I are okay. On with the show. Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is welcome to Florida. Craig, I can't say I was enjoying your your uh, a recent column in the Florida Phoenix, but I was interested. And uh, again, it's it's this uh, same old song and dance of the road builders and the developers versus uh, local communities in the environment. It is. And, and uh, you know, I'd written a, a couple of columns about the DOT building the Northern Turnpike Extension, and they were going to go through Gotha State Forest. And somebody contacted me and said, somebody from the Panhandle and said, why aren't you writing about a similar situation going up here in Walton County, where they want to build a road through Point Washington State Forest? And my reaction was, wait, they still trying to do that? Because they've been <laughs> trying to do that for seven years now. And sure enough, uh, they are still plugging away at it. And it's, you know, in spite of strong opposition, I was surprised by this strong opposition from the state agencies that are supposed to be protective of that land. They're actually doing their job and protecting it and saying, in fact, I didn't put this in the column, but the state parks folks wouldn't even allow the road surveyors into the park to check out a potential route. They're like, no, you're not even you can't even come in here to look around. Yeah, because yeah. we don't want a road in here at all. Well, and a lot of the oh difference of opinion, let's say, uh, has to deal with the nature of national forests. Now we all know what state parks are. We all know what national parks are. Obviously, Everglades National Park or Yellowstone or something like that. State forest or it's not state, it's state forest, for- but. It's, it's a state, state forest. Is it also it's a, a national state forest. forest or just a no, state? No. Okay. It's it's a it's the Point Washington State Forest. Okay. And it's adjacent to Top Sail Hill State Park and Deer Lake State Park and it's all part of the it's all one big ecosystem. And sure. the point I was trying to make in the column is you put a road through the middle of this state forest, you're not going to mess up the state forest. You're going to mess up these state parks too, yeah. which the taxpayers own. And mm-hmm. which the taxpayers spent twenty million dollars to buy. Right, developers like to believe you can do something to one part of an ecosystem and it will stop at the property line, which right. is of course nonsensical. State forests have different management principles and different rules for development, and 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 this is the case with national forests as well. National forests, a lot of people don't realize, are the purview of the agriculture department because the federal government considers trees crops is that the the same situation with state forests where they're primarily yep. managed as timberland as opposed well, to you know natural areas or, or you know carbon sinks or you know biodiversity you know preserves and habitat i wouldn't say primarily but i mean that that is a main concern is the timber there 
mm-hmm. but not to treat it like a crop specifically, but basically it's, it's an, it, it is under the state department of agriculture. So it kind of makes a difference who you elect as your agriculture commissioner. If you have an agriculture commissioner who is a fan of nature, the one we have now seems to be Nikki mm-hmm. Creed, then that's a good thing. The one we're probably going to elect next, Wilton Simpson, who answers to the big sugar folks and nobody else. I'm not so sure he's going to be such a big fan of yeah, you can all, draw all your, the nature in a state forest. Yeah, Draw your own conclusions there. But yeah, state forest land does not have the same uh, protections as state parkland, but it, it still has a lot of the trails and a lot of the recreational right. use. And, and again, the developers look at state forest as you know, fair game, essentially. They, they yeah. and, and you quote a, a, a gentleman in your story who looks at it essentially as a cornfield. Right. And he argues that, oh, this, you know, we would never want to put a road through a state park, but state forest, big deal. No big, you know, yeah, nobody cares about state mm-hmm. forest. Right. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll raise my hand as someone who does care. Really quickly, before we move on, you introduce a character uh, of from Florida history who uh, must be incredibly important, a name I've never heard before, has never come up on the podcast, to my knowledge, but at one point was in charge of the largest property owner in Florida, the largest railroad in Florida, and the largest bank in Florida. Who is this? Ed Ball. Ed Ball, once known as the most powerful man in Florida, never held any elective office, but he owned he he and he didn't technically he didn't own the St. Joe Company or the biggest bank in Florida or the railroad. He just managed it. He managed it as part of the DuPont family trust. His sister had married a DuPont and then the the DuPont she had married died and left all the money in this trust. And so he was the administrator of the trust. He was the guy in charge. And for at least 30 years, his word was law in Florida. What what, what time frame? What are we talking about here? What years? Like 1930s to the mid 60s, okay. I would say. Okay. And, and the, the heyday of the pork chop gang in the state legislature. Yeah. Wow. They bowed the knee to Ed Ball and whatever he <laughs> wanted, he got. And he, he traditionally every, uh, you know, every evening he'd raise his highball glass and, and offer the toast confusion to the enemy. So, Oof. FloridaPhoenix.com. You can read all about that. Craig's uh, got another column there every Thursday. New uh, work from Craig Pittman. And hey, congratulations, Craig. I saw Sierra Club honored you with uh, uh, an extraordinary, I won't say lifetime achievement, but uh, ongoing commitment (laughs) to environmental. It's a it's a national award. Yeah, it's it's a. It's as they say in a Christmas story. It's a major award. That's why it says Fragile on the package. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, named after uh, Rachel Carson, uh, author of Silent Spring, which is one of the the sparks of the modern uh, environmental uh, movement. And the yeah, Silent Spring is all about basically how toxic we were making our environment through yeah. pesticides and herbicides and you know, DDT and everything else. Mm -hmm, So a hat tip to you for that one. Welcome to Florida is sponsored by Windstorm Products. Windstormproducts.com started as a small family uh, company in Florida working with contractors down in kind of that Treasure Coast area. And it has evolved into the world's largest supplier of hurricane Hardware, and that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, a Florida company trying to help uh, Florida homeowners and business owners secure their property from hurricane 
wind damage. So again, if you're a homeowner, if you're a business owner, if you're a contractor, if you work for a municipality, if in any way you are responsible for protecting a structure from hurricane wind damage, you're going to want to visit windstormproducts.com and see what they have to offer. It's for do-it-yourselfers for sure, but also again, contractors, municipalities, if you want to order from them, use your expertise. If you want them to hook you up with a contractor, they know all the people all across this state who do this kind of work and can send you in the right direction. Again, a family-owned Florida company that has grown to become the world's largest online retailer of hurricane hardware, windstormproducts.com. Our guest this week, Craig, is the son of a legend. Rick Smith is the son of Patrick Smith. Patrick Smith is the author of A Land Remembered, a 1984 novel about a Florida family that has gone on and, and to this day is remarkably uh, influential. It's a, a book you've read. For, for folks who haven't, like myself, give us a, a synopsis of A Land Remembered so when we talk to Rick, we, we know where we're starting from. Sure. It's it's the story of the McIvey family. Uh, it sort of start, is a sort of a flashback structure to start with where Saul McIvey, who is living in the 1960s and is incredibly wealthy, is thinking back on the, the history of his family and how in the 1850s, the first of the McIveys, Tobias, comes to Florida with basically his wife and child and a buckboard full of tools and nothing else. He's got mm-hmm. no money or anything. And from there starts beginning the beginnings of, of the family fortunes with cattle, with citrus. He has to deal with such issues as hurricanes, civil war, uh, uh, bear attack. Uh, mm-hmm. basically, you know, and, and, uh, and some pretty desperate, uh, de- Confederate deserters at one point and, uh, they overcome all of this stuff. And then there, his son, Zach grows up and, you know, sort of carries on the, the, what goes on. And then Saul comes along and it just sort of tells the history of Florida from when we were a frontier state yeah. to um, the more modern, more developed place. And and gives people someone through which they can learn about the his the history of, of the state. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people consider it their favorite book. Uh, many, many more consider it the uh, greatest novel ever written about Florida. Some the greatest book ever written about Florida. Patrick Smith was the author of A Land Remembered and a, a number of other titles. He lived from 1927 until 2014. And his son Rick Smith joins us now. Rick, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, let's start off by, let me ask you, just tell us a little bit about the man behind the book. Tell us about your dad, Patrick Smith. Oh my gosh. That's a big subject. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, um, I've been reading up on him to prepare for this, reading some of his history. And one of the interesting things, people always know him for a land remembered, but he wrote, uh, eight novels, but a land remembered it's it's historical fiction, but it's not about history. It's about characters. And he, as a writer and as a person was never really interested in writing about events. He, the way he wrote his books was about people and they happened to happen in a certain time frame. So they, the history is part of the story, but he was really um, trying to tell stories about people. And, and if you read many of his books, it's almost always somebody that's poor or downtrodden by society. And he says a lot of that was because he grew up in this small town in Mississippi called Mendenhall. And I grew up there until I was about eight back during the thirties in the depression. Mm. People didn't have much, so he, that made a big impression on him. And throughout his life, he kind of wanted to speak for the downtrodden and the poor people in his novels, and and he did. What do you think pushed him to become a writer? What what compelled him to write about 
to write about Florida in particular in this book? Well, he said he was a writer from a very young age. When he was in high school, he used to write for the Simpson County News, the local newspaper there in Mendenhall, and he'd cover sports and local gossip and things like that. He was just was always a writer. And um, one of the things that really kicked him off when he was about 21 or 22, he um, wanted to convince himself he could write a novel. Before that, he'd just written editorials and, and articles. So he sat down about 10 days, knocked out this book called The River is Home. And it's about poor people down in South Florida. There, I love that book. He didn't expect to do anything with it. He went to show it to one of his professors at Ole Miss. And the professor said, Pat, this is really good. I think you can publish this. And dad and his naivete about publishing didn't know what to do. He went to the library and looked at the books and he saw one. The publisher was Little Brown. To him, that sounded like a small publisher. So he said, <laughs> he wrapped that book up in, in um, you know, that grocery bag, brown paper, mm -hmm. tied it with a string and sent it off and said, Dear Little Brown, this is my mm -hmm. yeah. River's Home. I would really like you to publish it. <laughs> he said a couple nothing happened a couple of months went by and all of a sudden he got a letter says we're publishing it and that just made it that cemented in his mind that he wanted to be an author and it was kind of a long it was kind of a long trail after that before he gained any kind of notoriety your dad experienced hardship like you mentioned where he he grew up and he would write about that experience but he also went out of his way and i found this fascinating in, in researching his creative method. He wrote a book about the Seminole tribe and he went and lived with the Seminole in Big Cypress. He wrote about migrant workers and disguised himself as a migrant worker to work in the fields. Uh, so, you know, his his research was more than empathy. I mean, he really put himself out there. What what did he tell you about those firsthand experiences researching his books that he put himself into? He said he'd never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very hard, but I'll bet. But when he wrote his first two books in Mississippi, he didn't have to research because he wrote about things he knew when he grew up. The River is Home in the beginning. Those are just from his own experience. When he moved to Florida and wanted to write about Florida, he really didn't know anything about Florida. So he had to research. And he saw this article about migrant workers being abused down in South Florida, but he couldn't write, a, you know, from that. He needed more experience. So he went down and passed himself off as a migrant worker and lived in the Actually, they made a movie out of that, um, Angel City. And he actually, they shot the movie in the camp where he worked. It wow. wasn't one of the worst ones, but it was bad. Mm -hmm. And some of them, they really did lock the, lock the gates at night and people couldn't get out. So that was happening, not just in Florida, but North Carolina and Texas, everywhere. And he said he wrote that book not so much because he wanted to make any money or get get awards for it. He hoped it would do something, mm -hmm. you know, change things for these poor people that were in these situations. And it did because they enacted several laws after that was shown. It was a CBS movie of the week and a lot of people saw it and they passed a lot of legislation to prevent that from happening. I'm sure it still does. But those two books, that and... Mm -hmm. uh, Forever Island, he had to write about Seminoles. We knew nothing about Seminoles. So he had to go down there and try to break in. And it's not easy because they're very, you know, standoffish. And eventually he made a friend down there. It turned out to be James Billy, who was chief at that time. And that took him like two years to get in there. And he said he'd never do that kind of work again. <laughs> mm. Well, how much research did he do for a land remembered? 
He said he did about two years of research. He read lots and lots of books. And as he described it, I wrote pounds and pounds of notes. <laughs> he measures his notes by pounds. And I have a lot of them. And um, so that took him about two years of research. And then when he sat down to write it, I think he probably spent six months or so writing it. And when he submitted it to a publisher, they had him change some things. And, you know, it was that was quite a process. That's his big book. How much when in doing the research for a land, remember, did he interview cattle ranching families, uh, citrus families, that kind of thing? Yes. Any, anything he could find. And I guess he says the word got out on the grapevine of what he was doing. And he said people would call him up and want to tell their stories to him. And so people were seeking him out to tell them their stories. And it's one of the funny things, the way a land remembered is told. It's very, very much like a lot of people who these old crackers, it's their family history. Yeah. A lot of people were always confused. Did you write about my family? Because it's exactly <laughs> <like your> family. <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reading some of the commentary on on the the different websites that uh, you know, Goodreads and places the the you know, reader comments are you know these are just the, these are the same stories that I heard or this sounds so much like what my grandparents told me. Obviously, the authenticity there is one hundred percent, and and clearly that was important to him. Yeah, and when you think about it, back in eighteen fifty or something like that, there weren't a lot of high rollers coming into Florida. There was nothing to come to. So they all had to struggle. So they probably all had very similar experiences trying to make a living there. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. A Land Remembered came out in 1984. Was it uh, instantaneously successful? I don't think it was instantaneously successful. But the interesting thing is, how many years is that now? It's almost 40 almost years. 40, it's yeah. Years. It sells more every year. And that's extremely, no rare, extremely rare for a book to be published and, and keep growing. And, you know, now, of course, it's used in schools and um, mm-hmm. it's just pretty phenomenal. Well, I was going to ask you about that. How do, or how is it being used in schools? Is it being used as part of like a Florida history curriculum or English or what? Yeah, they use it mostly as Florida history, which is interesting because it's fiction. Mm-hmm. But it does capture the fiction is the characters are based on fiction. So it does teach a lot of Florida history. And I've had teachers say they also use it for literature because it's the first book they could get children interested in reading all the way through. Yeah. One teacher told me she was reading it to them and um, the bell rang. You got to go get to the bus and the kids are begging her. Don't stop. Don't stop. Walking <laughs> <laughs> out to the bus reading to finish that chapter. Oh my gosh. I love that. <laughs> I just love it. Love that there's, one version, there's one version for younger readers. It's called a student version and it's slightly different, but what's weird to me, it's that some of the, grisly things that happen in there they left those in they just took out the cuz words <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you still see death and dying and you know i don't know that's a decision they made <clears throat> he was such a, a studious uh thorough researcher what what appealed to him though about writing fiction versus non-fiction because clearly he could have written a a non-fiction account of this it seems if he'd wanted to he said he only wanted to write novels he liked storytelling yeah. and you know, he disliked that format and always stuck with it. What kind of reception did it get from the critics when it first came out? Well, it's interesting. I think it was well received, but there are some things in there. He wrote it like people would have spoken back in 1850. And he used the N-word in there a lot. And he got quite a bit of fluff about that. But the NAACP stepped in and said, no, this is this is 
fictionally, I mean, not fictionally, historically correct. Some some people were really complaining about that. And so that kind of threw him for a while. But, you know, it's like Mark Twain wrote like that, too. You know, you, you have to tell a story in the words and the way people talk. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about The River is Home, if you ever read that one. It's kind of hard to read at first. You have to get into the the pattern of, you know, the, the way people are speaking, because he wrote it like these swamp rats, these uneducated people down the deep south would have spoken. And so, you know, the way he writes words reflects that. So it can be a bit challenging. And he, he said, actually, if he had to write that book again, he wouldn't do it. It wouldn't make it that hard to read. And But mm. I I love that book. And I love the way, you know, one of the things I think is really <clears throat> characteristic of him is he sets the scene for his characters. I mean, characters are so important to him. He always sets the scene for the character or the situation. And if it's okay, I'm going to read a little bit from one sure. thing. This is from <clears throat> A Land Remembered. It says, Tobias McIvey was 30 years old and had been in the Florida scrub for five years. He'd come south out of Georgia in 1858. In his horse-drawn wagon, there was a sack of corn, a sack of sweet potatoes, a few packets of seeds, a shotgun, and a few shells, a frying pan, several pewter dishes and forks, and a cast iron pot. There were also the tools he would need to clear the land and build a house. Two chopping axes, a broad, ad, broad axe foot adds, crosscut saw, auger bit, a fro, and drawing knife. His wife, Emma, five years younger than he, held the baby as gently as possible as the wagon bounced over an old Indian trail that skirted to the east of Okefenokee Swamp and then turned due south. Tobias had owned 40 acres of red Georgia clay, which he tried to farm and failed. When he sold the cabin and land, he had enough money to buy only what was in the wagon. And that's how he brings these people into Florida in 1858. They're, they have nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They stop first in uh, Fernandina Beach, where I live, and they pick up some uh, livestock, some sort of Spanish cow, which I'd never heard of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, The Yellowhammer. Yeah. <laughs> There are some people in Florida that are still raising those just to keep them alive. Oh, yeah. Breed alive. Yeah. But one of the things I love about his work is he, the way he establishes characters. And one of the things he tried when he, here's an interesting thing I read. I'm reading his history about him. He said one of the ways he starts writing a book, he doesn't sit down and make an outline, all that. First thing he does is he names the, creates and names the characters. Mm. He likes to create the characters' names that reflect what they're like so like in the river is home skeeter the young boy that's in that you know that kind of gives you a picture of that boy pa cory uh abner you know abner cory that sounds like a kind of like an old person living in the swamps um so he always created characters first and then kind of put them into action in the books so he didn't know where the plot was going to go when he started writing he just started writing with the with the characters in mind well, characters came first, and then I think he did write, you know, like with the land remembered, he knew certain things he wanted to bring into that, like the Civil War, some of the hurricanes, the floods. Mm -hmm. I don't think he started writing it. He knew exactly how that was going to work. But it, with that book, it's chronological. So he could kind of see what's coming up next with the characters. Yeah. Okay. The bear attack's going to be here. <laughs> yeah. <right>. Yeah. <laughs> and then the cattle rustles will be here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As they go along in life and they get more money and they're less living in the wilderness, things change. And and uh, it's all pretty accurate as to what happened back then. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you grew up in Mississippi until you were eight. Is that when you and your, your family moved to Florida? And what did you think of it at, at that time? 
No, we we moved from Mendenhall to a little, even smaller town, I think, called Raymond, where there's a junior college there called Heinz Junior College. Okay. And Dad went to school there. He, when he was, he graduated from high school when he was 14. <laughs> and he wanted to go to Ole Miss. And he said he was on his way to Ole Miss, and, he, and the bus stopped somewhere, and he started talking to these other boys, and they're all going to Heinz. And he said, well, let's go with us and go to Heinz. So he did. So in 19, uh, whatever the year that was, 1958 or something, he got a job offer at Heinz to be their public relations director. And we actually had to live in army dorms <laughs> for a year or two because we didn't have any money. He didn't make much money doing that. Eventually, he bought a house from the the president of the college for, I think, $28,000. It was on a lake, had five acres. It was beautiful. Wow. As soon as he got that house, he got an offer from Ole Miss to go up there. So we moved up to Ole Miss after Raymond. And he was there during the James Meredith, uh, when James Meredith mm. went to college there, which was a big whoopty doing in the civil rights movement in the South. Yeah. And then in 1966, we moved to Florida. And my grandparents, my my mother's parents lived in DeLand. And she wanted to be closer to them. They're getting older. So I think that's one of the reasons we moved to Florida. So in 1966 on, we lived there. What was your first reaction when you first moved when you first moved to Florida? Why did you like it? You know, I was so thinking I was going to get a dolphin in my backyard. Like <laughs> we bought a house on a canal, really nice house. And I wanted to have my own dolphin like Flipper, you know, but that didn't ever happen. I guess I was a little shocked at the heat because I went to the I was in ninth grade then. And as I recall, that school wasn't even air conditioned. So I'm there in September. I'm the new kid. Mm-hmm. And it's you can't do anything without sweating. And it just it was kind of hard. And I lived I moved to California in 1975. But the whole time I was in Florida, I never totally got used to the heat there. I just I don't handle heat that well. And so, which was funny when I was doing these speaking tours, I did all over Florida. I'd go on the stage and I'm soaking wet <laughs> at the time. <laughs> when did you realize or recognize that your your dad was kind of a big deal for this writing thing? You know, that's a good question because he'd always send me, he'd publish a book and he'd send it to me and go, here's my new book. And he, he kept every single newspaper article that came out about him. Going back oh to the 50s, I have them all now. <laughs> and I have cases of them. It's like, dad, you never threw a single thing away. Letters, thousands of letters. But really around uh, 2003, he was a very popular public speaker after Forever Island came out and he said it is he'd had a major health issue and he knew his health was failing and he couldn't keep doing that. So he told me, Rick, if you make a video of my talk, you'll sell thousands of them. And I had taken an early retirement from university out here and started a video production company. So I'm like, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so I said, OK, Dad, let's make a let's do that video. And they go, well, I'm not ready yet. And I flew out there a couple of times and he finally one time, I think he knew it's now or never. So we went out on the back porch. I had a simple camera on a tripod and a microphone. And he talked to me for an hour, that speech that he gave to everybody. And I knew I had something, but I'm, I'm like everybody else. I'm kind of lazy. And so <laughs> I didn't really do anything with it right away. And then it took a couple of years. My wife was kept telling me, you got to make a, you know, got to finish that film. So we flew to Florida several times and went to museums. And then we went and shot B-roll. We shot all over Florida, went down to the big cypress swamp, shot the Seminoles. We did everything we could to bring it to life. So you're not just watching him talk. Mm -hmm. And 
I did that and I finished it and said, well, now what am I going to do? And I entered it in a film festival in Tupelo, Mississippi. <laughs> and uh, it won first place. And they had some movie stars there that tell me, you got something here. So I realized that I realized what a big deal it was. And then we went out there when he was inducted into the Florida Artist Hall of Fame. And, you know, at that point, I started realizing how big he was. And then once I started um, selling that video, I made a website and started selling video. I said, well, might as well sell his books, too. So he started selling all his books and it kind of just unfolded. And then really for the last 17, 18 years, my life has revolved around a land remembered in my dad's books. Uh, it just turned out that way. Yeah. Yeah. What is the website people can find the video at? Alandremembered.com. Makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Yeah. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit about the decision to go with the graphic novel version, because that's fascinating. I, re I really like the artwork in it. Well, the artist, Andre Fratino, he's very good. And I think the book is wonderful. He approached the publisher, which at that time was Pineapple Press, and they contacted me and said, well, this this guy wants to make a graphic novel of it. And I didn't really know what a graphic novel was. I thought it was like a cartoon or, you know, comic book or something. So I said, okay. And then as it went along, they'd send me some samples and I go, this is really good. <laughs> and, and so I, re I didn't really have much input on the creative part of it, but uh, I think it very accurately, you know, the, the parts they pull out to illustrate were important parts in the book. I think Andre did a really good job with it. What did your dad think of Florida? Um, he liked it. He was sad to see it get so overdeveloped, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. He could see the overdevelopment. He did that. He, he brought that into uh, Forever Island, for one thing. The, the poor old Charlie Jumper, the Indian, was losing his way of life, and the Seminoles were too because of development. And then Alain remembered um, at the very end, he was very, very sorry to see all, all the stuff that he had developed in Miami and places like that. He felt he'd ruined it. And yeah, the, the lead character. Yeah. I felt dad felt that too, that in a way they ruined it with overdevelopment. People probably don't want to hear that. <laughs> well, I was going to say it's, it's a rare book that's really popular, but it has a, a down, to be honest, a downbeat ending where Saul McIvey looks back and realizes I've, I've really screwed up. Yeah. And he was kind of, you know, he know his knew his, his grandpa, had who was totally illiterate though had done a pretty good job of just making a living off the land and when he got all his money Saul just built 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 and built then at the end he is very sorry for that and I know I go to Florida pretty often when I was on my speaking tour I was there two or three times a year for maybe four to six weeks I've been everywhere and one of the things that always um, frustrated me is the traffic in a lot of places and the amount of building, it's like people are still pouring in there and you're going to run out of resources. Kill the goose that laid the golden egg, as they used to say. Yeah. And I think dad knew that, too. He he saw that coming. Did he, did his, um, you know, interest in Florida and natural Florida ever extend to political activism or campaigning or anything of, of that, you know, working with uh, land conservancies or anything like that? No, I don't think so. He. He was often asked to be on committees and join. Will you be on this panel for something mm -hmm. or other? But he was not real active doing that. I think he did it the best he could through what he wrote. I have to say, the, the to me, the funniest scene in the book is where Saul McIvey gets up and, and tells a whole bunch of lies about where he came from and then says, <laughs> yeah. I did that just to fool y'all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that. And I, that, that to me sounded like Patrick Smith talking about 
<laughs> that's something he might have done. Yeah. In fact, it was a little bit harsher language than what you just said, too. But <laughs> what stunned me, what really surprised me once I got involved in his life, because when he wasn't able to go on tours anymore, people started saying, well, will you come and speak? So, well, I didn't write the book. But they said, well, that's okay. And so I, I developed this audiovisual show. So my background's in film and video. And I started doing it. And I was just overwhelmed by the number of people that would show up to hear me talk about the land remembered. All I had to do, I'd, it was museums and libraries and universities and things like that. I kept telling them, all you got to do is put the name a land remembered in a press release and people will show up. <laughs> and I, I did about 350 shows. Wow. And almost every single one was full house or overflowing. And people would stand all around the walls, sit on the floor. And uh -huh. one we did one on a, a rainy Tuesday afternoon in Fort Pierce in a theater there that seats 1,200 people. It filled wow. it. And all ages, people would take their kids out of school because the, the book just has that kind of a power in Florida. And I've spoken at the villages several times where virtually nobody's from Florida. Hmm. And I feel like in a way I'm I'm educating people about the Florida that they live in. Spoken at a lot of schools, the school kids, like we said earlier, just love it. Rick Smith, son of Patrick Smith, has been our guest. I'll have links in the show notes to uh, find a land remembered in the video on the website. And uh, you can uh, watch that and uh, get a, a real deep insight into not only the author, but what he's writing about. And that is the state of Florida. Rick Smith, thank you so much for your time today. My Thanks pleasure. very much. Yeah, My this pleasure. has been great. Thank you. Here's here's why I really wanted to talk about this book is because mm -hmm. a lot of people think of that as this is the Florida novel. And I think there are some other contenders. Zora Neale Hurston's famous book, um, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Marjorie Ken Rawlings' book, The Yearling. Mm -hmm. But it, but what I like, though, is that these are all the all books that sort of tell you about Florida as it used to be, Florida, the, the way it was, you yeah. know, in the... In, in a while ago <laughs> so they're Florida the way it used to be I, and I wonder if there are any books like that being written now any novels now that are depicting you know what Florida is like for people in the future to read yeah that's a that's a good question right every you know well I mean you know that space better than I would I mean you know you know a, a lot of authors do you, you know is there and, and I'm, I mean these are incredibly interesting times so you'd have to assume there are right i would hope so i sure hope so uh and you know if not by a native then maybe somebody who's moving here and discovers what a wonderful place this is then how full of stories it is yeah absolutely so I'll, I'll, I'll tell them welcome to florida <laughs> yeah and whatever that book will be it will be sold at bookstore one in sarasota and that reminds us that welcome to florida is brought to you by visit sarasota and then sarasota has this incredible literary history that uh and community it's a current community not a lot of people know of you know john d mcdonald has spent time there stephen king but also craig Pittman. recently when you do your book signings in sarasota you go to bookstore one in sarasota downtown and and you were there recently and i know that's yes. one of your favorite spots in sarasota oh, yeah. Just there, I was just there and uh, had a really great time. About 40 or 50 people showed up for uh, a book talk where I was discussing the state you're in and also Manatee Insanity. And we even did some Florida trivia questions, which was that was lots of fun. <laughs> I'm so. sure, I'm sure Bookstore One has some signed copies of Craig's books and they do all kinds of author talks. They've got, you know, Florida titles, but also your bestsellers and, and everything else you're looking for. And again, Sarasota, a really uh, extraordinary 
local book, literary community, and history. I've got links to that in the show notes as well at visitsarasota.com. Uh, How many times do you think you've let or, uh, read a land remembered, Craig? Because you know clearly you you remember the the, the plot lines and the characters quite vividly from our well, conversation I, with Rick. I have to admit that the graphic novel is now sort of the definitive version in my mind because okay. it, it's it's just so vivid to see the pictures you know before you know when you're reading you might have sort of a hazy image of what the characters are like and what they're doing but reading the graphic novel really made a difference to me i really liked it a lot welcome to florida welcome to florida and and go read a land remembered <laughs>